About ready here. Everybody ready <coughs> for a continuation of our Colossians study where we're moving along. <coughs> and last week we talked about true freedom and we'll kind of finish that up today <coughs> and then move into really the Christian life. And we're going to talk about sanctification and what Paul tells the Christian how we should live our Christian life as justified Christians what's called our sanctified life. So we'll jump into that today. Before we do, let's begin with the invocation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so true freedom. That's what we talked about. And we were in uh, chapter 2, covering uh, verses 16 through 23. Now we got through 16 through 22, so we almost finished it here. But Again, just to kind of recap, we, we did learn in this section that we did hear that there were some Jewish elements to this Colossian heresy. We talked about this. We talked about the Sabbath. And then also that the teachers there in Colossae may have been teaching you know, strict adherence to certain dietary laws and restrictions on what you could and could not eat, um, observances of uh, festivals, um, then we also talked about there could have been maybe a non-Jewish element to these teachings. Um, the, the false teachers had also called for people to follow um, this ascetic life. Remember we talked about that being completely drawn from society. And there was also an aspect of uh, worship of angels. And again, in all these, the false teachers deemed that anyone who weren't really submitting to these regulations that they were, they were under God's condemnation and they were really unfit for perfection, which was in direct contradiction to Christ's gift in the gospel. And we went through that uh, quite a bit last time. Um, any follow-up questions on that, on, on any of the dietary regulations? or Before we jump into this? Okay. If not, if you don't mind, let's go ahead and, and look back. Let me go ahead. I would like to read that, ag that, that again because it's putting everything in perspective then when we move on to pa Paul's further analysis of this sanctified life. So, verses, uh, it's 2, 16 through 23. Uh, we, we talked about, and this was under, let no one disqualify you in our uh, study Bible here, in true freedom. So, 16 starts, therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. <clears throat> Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, for whom the whole body nourished and knit together through which joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, <clears throat> why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, 
referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. And that right there, verse 23, is kind of the conclusion of this about talking about what, what was being required. So let's do take a look at uh, verse 23 here, and then we'll wrap this section up. So again, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So although Paul does admit that the false teachers kind of have this appearance of wisdom, why then are they no value to the Colossians? And it's here because the teaching is, is there, there is an appearance of, of wisdom in this, but that what Paul is saying here, as we'll look into it, is, is that all this really do not curb or control sin in the lives of its inherents. And Paul says then, under self-made religions, these have an appearance, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting, promoting self-made religion. What does he mean by that? Self-made religion, the Greek word, it's really self-willed, arbitrary and unwarranted piety uh, or self-imposed worship. But I think our Greek dictionary uh, that I refer to, um, it really means, the authors conclude that this term is a do-it-yourself religion. And that's what Paul's stressing here. Anything that's associated with this works righteousness, anything that man has made to try to make themselves acceptable before God and justified. But Paul then says in the second half of 23, but these, these do-it-yourself religions, they are, of, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, okay? So flesh here has the same meaning that we looked at back in um, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. And I'll draw your attention to those now. If you go to 2.11, remember that Paul wrote, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, so that's this indulgence of the flesh. And then in 2.13 he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So then this flesh here, it's not one's physical makeup that Paul's talking about. it. Rather, it's the individual set in hostility and rebellion against God. So that's what this indulgence of the flesh is. An indulgence of the flesh, as we've talked about before in this class, is the original sin, right? No effort of humanity, no matter how noble it seems or how disciplined in good things, that is really not able to stop our sinful nature or to do away with our original sin. And I guess here the false teachers that we're, Paul's talking about were again, seeking to be righteous by their own efforts. But what Paul's arguing is they were actually departing from the only means of being righteous on earth, 
And that is the forgiveness of sins, which is received by faith on account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So then, here, when we say, when Paul says this sentence here, you know, even though I have a, 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 some type of appearance of wisdom, you know, they have no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So any teaching that leads one away from the gift, the free gift of salvation in Christ, is to say the least, has no value, if we, as we see there in, in verse 23. Okay? So the final thought on true freedom, then, this section, the, there were many who followed these philosophies and strict disciplines and even a life of good works, all in the hopes that these alone will somehow bring them to perfection and the judgment of God that they have earned eternal life by doing these things. Um, however, all of these teachings, and in fact like the false teachers of today, do lead people away from Jesus. It puts the focus on you and not on Jesus. And, and Jesus is God's gift of salvation. Um, it also brings us away from his gifts that brings his forgiveness, forgiving grace, his cross, his word, and his sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper. But thankfully here in this section we see that our Lord uses Paul to point out how silly this stuff is and point us clearly back in the Colossians back to the only one source of salvation who paid um, that um, with his blood on the cross, and that's Jesus. So um, that's the conclusion of that section there. Any question on that, on what true freedom is? True freedom is in, is in Christ. Oh, I, that's what I was just going to ask. I, I was thinking of Romans 7 where Paul, struggling with his... You know his right. indulgence in the flesh, and I was going to say this begs the question: Well, uh, what does have value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh in Christ Jesus? And that's, that's right. That's where he answers. Okay, that's good. the pure point of this. Paul's saying it's none of this other stuff of the flesh. It's all everything is uh, in Christ. That's where the salvation is, and that's his point. Well, thank you. Any other thoughts? Okay, so let's move on. Um, then Paul really, then that's kind of the main theme we talked about Christ when he, in this whole last section. But now Paul really does get to the nitty-gritty in here in chapter 3, um, 1 through 4, 6. And this is really where he really focuses in the, on. Now he's talked about justification, how we're justified, right? But then Paul looks at then our sanctified life. Okay, what does that mean? Yes, we're justified. We know we have salvation. But then Paul is going to tell us now really um, in depth of what the Christian life does look like um, in our sanctified life. Um, and this is what we're going to jump in today. So, so even though Paul led us into this, this concept that God's grace is freely given to us on account of Christ's blood on the cross... Now he's going to use some interesting language. We put off the old self and put on a new self in Christ. And, and he leads us into this. As he leads us into this now, Paul will describe what our new self looks like and how that new self in us relates to our neighbor. 
Okay. So in, 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 in speaking about this Christian life, he breaks it up into four different ways of looking at it, which is in our outline here. The Christian life, one, he's going to talk about death and life, which we'll go through today. And then two is put off and put on. Interesting uh, language here, but it's right in the text. It's very great, and we'll get into that today. Then three is the table of duties, and four is watch and pray. Okay, so now let's look with, start with this, what is this death and life that Paul's talking about here? So if you'll turn in your Bibles to chapter three, and as you can see, the editors of our Lutheran Study Bible have, have entitled it, Put on the New Self. Okay. So I will read 3, uh, 1 through 4. We'll begin on that, where he sets the stage for this. Starting with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. In glory, Great stuff there. Okay, so let's look closely then at these four verses here. What's Paul setting up? So if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So right off the bat, he says, if, then. So Paul's clearly indicating a new part here, all of which deal with the true Christian life, which results from true doctrine, as he'll get into. So what we see is that Paul will sketch this true Christian life in such a way that is opposite to the, the Judaistic life or the, the other heretics, but really also to anything of the world. Um, and anything really that's based on this do-it-yourself religion we to look at here. So that's why Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Now we've heard raised with Christ numerous times throughout Colossians and uh, through uh, a lot of Paul's writing. So then how have Christians, including those at Colossae, been raised with Christ? And we've hit this every, every time uh, throughout the our studies of Colossians here. And this is, how are we raised with Christ? Again, this is a baptismal language. And if you recall, if you want to look at it, Colossians 2, 12, we first looked at this, where Paul writes, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him for the dead. Again, baptismal language. He says it right there in verse 12. And then I've repeatedly gone back to the Romans 6 passage, Romans 6, 3 through 5, which says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when Paul uses this, if then you have been raised with Christ, what he's saying is this, you have been raised with Christ 
in your baptism. And the third study note in our uh, study Bible here, it, it, it does a really good job of emphasizing this. Raised with Christ. It writes, Paul uses the same language as in 2.12, which I just read, to show that baptism is a means to salvation and to the Christian life. Okay? So that's what it is, raised with Christ. Okay, but then Paul says, um, well, I want to talk about one more thing. If then you have been raised with Christ, um, if you look at the Greek, some commentators uh, say that it can be read this way. If then you were jointly raised with Christ, and the way the Greek is and the verb tenses of everything, it, this is a condition of reality. It is the positive counterpart of the negative died, um, which we've talked about if in t- uh, 2.20, if with Christ you died. This is the other side of it. The Christian dies with Christ and also is raised up with Christ. Again, this is baptismal language. So, but it's an ongoing reality. So according to God's word in our baptism then, we have been connected by the work of the Spirit to Jesus' death, right? But in addition, we have been buried with him in this sacrament. And as Jesus has risen from the dead, we are also tied to his resurrection. But here's kind of the key on all this is what you'll get into more. Baptism brings to the life of the follower of Jesus a daily dying to sin and a daily resurrection to new life in his forgiveness. So what Paul's doing here is closely connecting what follows in this chapter about a life of sanctification. Again, to what the preceding chapters talked about, um, our, our justified life, here he takes us in to our sanctified life and is doing this by baptism. And we're going to see it further here when he talks about the old self and the new self. Okay. So then, if then you have been raised with Christ, which is really you, not if then, then if you were jointly raised with Christ, you are, it's an ongoing, <clears throat> you are raised with Christ. What do we do? We seek the things that are above, or can be translated, the things above keep seeking. So Paul here encourages uh, his readers and us to set our minds on things above and be constantly seeking such things. But then the question is, is what does things above mean? And I think we, we know that. Of course, it means where Christ is, our risen Lord, whose resurrection gives us our spiritual resurrection. Now, of course, when we say where Christ is above, we're not, it's not literal, right? This is picture language. It's not spatially, but spiritually. And Paul goes on, above, what, where is Christ above? Christ, then, above, is seated at the right hand of God. So this is what Paul's saying, above, seated at the right hand of God. And again, this is reference to the resurrection of Christ. This is the enthronement of Christ. And we get this um, looking back at Psalm 110.1, where it's written, The Lord, who is God the Father, says to my Lord, who is Christ. Now David's writing this, my Lord, which is Christ. It's a little confusing. So it's the Lord says to my Lord. Okay, When you look at it, it's the Lord. He's referencing God the Father, says to my Lord, which is Christ. 
Sit at my right hand until I make enemies of your footstool. So what does this right hand of God mean? What's great in our, our Lutheran confessions, I looked this up in our formula of Concord because we talk about this in Article 8 um, on the person of Christ. There's a lot written on this, but on this is, is great about Christ being above. Some people take, kind of take that literally and he's up there floating in the clouds. You know, we see that. But that's not what this is referring to. What our Book of Concord, the Formula of Concord, tells us is the person of Christ, okay, according to the manner of the right hand of God. So basically saying, what, is, what do we mean? What does the Bible mean when it talks about the right hand of God? Is no fixed place in heaven, okay? But nothing else than this, the almighty power of God, which fills heaven and earth, in possession of which is instilled in Christ. So, right hand of God, it's not this true right literal sense in up floating in the clouds. It's the power of God Almighty that's been given to Jesus now, and that's what he has um, after the resurrection. And that's what it means when Paul says, uh, where we focus on Christ at the right hand, is what we focus on Christ and his almighty power, which fills heaven and earth. It's everywhere. So this comforting image, of course, Paul is saying that Jesus has already ascended to the right hand God. But in ancient times, Zohar is seated at the right hand of a king, not only had access to the king, but were in his favor. Most often, the one seated at the king's right hand was his son and heir to the throne. And that's the image here. Therefore, as our Savior is seated at God's right hand, Paul is reminding his readers and us that Jesus is truly the Son of God, seated at the right hand, and Christ is the almighty power. So that's where we're sitting our things on above, on Christ. Okay? Not always looking above, but knowing that it's Christ um, that we are to seek. Um, as opposed to, then in 3 times 2, we talked about it, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, so seek Christ as opposed to, two, it says again, set your minds on things that are above, which we just talked about that. Things above, again, it's a Christ who saves us, who is the source of our salvation. So that's what Paul's seeing us to look at. Of course, then not on the face, uh, not on things of the earth. By contrast, Paul says, don't set our mind on earthly things. But, you know, earthly things does not mean just mundane, common things. Um, but rather, earthly things means those that pertain to sinful, evil fallenness of this world. Okay? And the study note does a good job here, too. On earth, if you look at it, Paul does not despise the things of the earth. However, he realizes that this fallen world should not be our focus. Okay? So that's again to this. We focus on Christ and him crucified for our sins, not on the things of this world. Okay, any questions on that? This seems like it could be uh, 
like an arrow in the quiver for uh, Gnostics. Elaborate. Well, um, or, or was the Gnostic idea that the things of this world are evil? Yeah, that is true. That is true. But I think the things, I think it's not necessary. You know, there is the Gnosticism aspect about it. Remember, we just kind of went through then kind of the Judaizers and other heretics were talking about, you know, all the do's and don'ts of this man, their self-justification religion. I think that's now what Paul's shifted his attention to at this point. But you're true, Gnosticism different. But I think Paul's really specifically referring to all the things that these people were making, uh, you know, requirements above, um, you know, Christ's death on the cross, that you need to do this or that to become righteous before God. That's what Paul's now focusing on here. But you're right. There is a Gnosticism element, but I don't think that's exactly what Paul now is talking with us here. But yeah, that could be seen as that. But maybe that's why it wasn't a Gnosticism. I mean, we just don't know. But what we do know is Paul specifically addresses you know, these things, these requirements of foods that you cannot touch and stuff. So, But that's a great point. So maybe that's an argument against that it really wasn't absolutely all Gnostic, Gnosticism. Pastor, did you have anything to add to that? Okay. Um, I was going to add, um, I've come to understand more uh, this meaning of um, dying to self and being resurrected which is which happens in our baptism but on a daily basis uh you mentioned that we're to do that and martin luther i think said when we go to bed at night that practices our death and our resurrection is our rising in the morning and uh, saying the morning or the evening and then the morning prayer ties into that and uh, it's been very helpful to me to understand this process of sanctification depending on Christ in, into your hands I commend myself and you know so this whole process is just it, I don't think it's a work though of mine but right. I think it's it's a uh, uh, what's the right a metaphor for I, it's a gift I think it's it is a gift it's a gift it's a daily drowning of the old man and we're going to get to that I appreciate that and especially in verse t- uh, 310 when we talk about this I got a lot to say on that but you're actually going in the right direction it is very comforting this uh, renewal uh, daily renewal a daily dying the old man days and a daily renewal of the new man and it's gift language it's, it's certainly gift language Good. okay so we got so he so now we have this other thing. So I talked about, but new, do not focus on the things of the earth. I think it is uh, really specifically with all these extra rules and regulations that were going on at the time, something that you have to do and follow. No, it's all about focusing on Christ um, and his resurrection and death. And really it's focusing on that's the salvation that we have. Okay, so moving on to 3.3 three then. This, this is a little tricky here. Okay, so Paul then says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, so let's kind of look at this here. So, um, And you kind of have to take this then in conjunction with verse 3, 4, 2. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So let's look at this together. So you have... For you have died, okay? 
And again, I mean, this is not a, a literal death, right? We know that, because Paul's speaking to us and those Christian then. You have died, but this is everything we've been talking about, this baptismal image, imagery, right? And, and Paul talked about this in, in 2.20. He, he said, we died with Christ away from the elementary things in the world. Again, it's this context of baptism. So, but then Paul, I think here, is saying in some commentators, is that because of this, die near baptism, <clears throat> when Paul says, for you have died, that now, if you died in your baptism, that now you've got, we get, can get away, you died in the sense that you got away from these false religions that required you to do this or that. All religions of works. Okay? Po- possibly could be a reference to that, some commentators say. But here then, it's a little tricky, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Um, again, we, you take it in, 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 in conjunction with 3-4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what this is, is this is this already not yet motif that I've kind of talked about. Um, so in the study note, you'll see in 3-3, three, three, um, or 3-4, Let's see. No, that's not right here. But let, no, that not. I want to talk about this. When when Christ, who is in your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Again, this already not yet motif. So while we are still alive in this fallen world, the fullness of who we are in Christ is hidden. Back to verse three three. With Him, as He is seated at the right hand of God. So that's Christ will appear to His world again when He returns on the last day to judge the world. We know that. And when he appears on that day, Paul reminds his readers that believers will also appear with Jesus in glory. So what, it, what he's talking about when you're hidden with Christ, this is before the last day. So this side of heaven, um, until his return, the fullness of our eternal life that we already have in Christ will really not be revealed until the last day. Okay, So although we already possess eternal life now, we do not yet experience it fully, for it is now hidden and will be revealed or appear only on the last day. Right. So this is this idea of the resurrection. Although we know it now, we already have a resurrected life. It's, not, it's now, but it's really not yet until the last day when Christ comes. So that's what Paul's talking about when he said, your life hidden with Christ, it's a reference to the, re- to the resurrection. resurrection. But then when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So you see what's going on here. It's a hidden, it's a, it is a now, but it's really a not yet in the resurrection here. A little confusing. I think that's what Paul's getting at and what the Okay, but then on the last day, what will happen? Um, Verse 34 here says, Then you will also appear with him in glory. And I've talked a little bit about glory, but I want to talk about it just a little bit more. Remind what Paul means. What does that mean, we will appear with him in in glory? This is a term descriptive of our eternal life and the resurrection that exists for us Christians. It's really now, but again, not yet. But we will be in glory. So the Greek word for glory is doxa. It is an extremely rich term. Uh, Dr. Dettering, who's wrote the commentary on Colossians, who I'm, I'm using a lot, is very good, 
says this, the terminology of glory provides a window on virtually the whole of Paul's theology in this sense. Doxa, or glory, is used to describe the being of God himself, especially as this is revealed to mankind. But also, doxa, or glory, is an incarnational term pointing to Christ, the Word made flesh, who revealed his divine glory. So hence, glory then is the image of God. By using a term associated with God's self-revelation for the resurrection, um, our life in glory, Paul asserts this same truth as Peter did in in 2 Peter. And I want to read this and now you'll see where I'm going to. So if you have your Bibles and you want to, or otherwise I can read it, it's 2 Peter 1, 3-4, what this glory is. Second Peter one three through four. Okay, so we'll begin with verse three here. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory, there it is, and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is what glory is. So we also become partakers of the divine nature. So such significance of glory makes it a highly appropriate term to describe what will happen to us in eternal salvation. So that's what Paul means uh, when we will appear with him in glory at the resurrection. Okay? So then, that's how Paul is setting up this putting on the new self. Again, it's all about this sanctified life. So now we'll move on to this next section. We talked about death and life and what that means for us. Okay? But now in in chapter 3, verse 5... Um, and through, actually, verse 17, but I'm going to split it up into two, okay? So this is now what what, uh, uh, my outline, which I got, is broken up into two things. So put off and put on. So in in verses 1 through 4, we kind of talked about these broad, principles of sanctification. Now here Paul, it says, now here Paul is going to get into very specific issues about the sanctified life, and it is this put on and put put off and put on. And this is really specific instructions on what we do in our sanctified life. So if you'll see in chapter 3, verse 5, the first thing Paul writes is put to death, okay? Another thing, that's the put off, okay? And when I say put off, what Paul's saying put to death is don't do these things. These are sin, right? Self-explanatory. So we put these off. But then we'll see then in verse 12, Paul then says on the other side, put on then. Of course, put on means here, do these things. 
in your sanctified life. So we'll go through these. We'll start with the put off, don't do things. So starting with verse 5 then, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And just right off the back, we can see here a lot of uh, Ten Commandments stuff, sexual immorality, which is the first three, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, six commandments stuff, covetousness, eighth commandment, idolatry, first commandment. So these are all first commandment things, okay? But what Paul's saying here is that even we put off this old self and old sinful ways, but we're still constantly tempted in this fallen world to return to the sinfulness which we walk at times. And of course, he vividly describes this, this in Romans chapter 6, which I'm not going to get into. But we've got to remember, by the grace accomplished for all in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and through the work of the Holy Spirit and holy baptism, the believer in Jesus has already died to sin and been raised to a new life. As Christ's grace is the power for our salvation, is also the power then for our putting to death those things that are not above. And that's important. It's Christ's grace and the power of our salvation. Okay? So in these verses, Paul does not list every possible sin, but he does give us a representative list of sins which harm our relation to God and as well as harms our relation to our neighbor. So let's look at a few of these um, quickly. So first of all, put to death... Um, these things are put off, which is earthly in you. Um, sexual immorality. Uh, this term actually in the Greek is pornea. It's where we get our, our English uh, pornography from. It's fornification, any form of wrongful se sexual intercourse. Um, impurity, Paul talks about. It's really of uncleanliness. And again, Paul is grouping this with these groups of sexual sins. Um, that's why it's grouped here. He's talking it in that sense. Passion as well. It's an unfavorable connotation, kind of which denotes um, a lust of a sexual nature. So Paul's grouping all these hint, uh, three together in the sexual immorality. And I guess uh, the commentators say, of course, and we know this, uh, sexual sins were prevalent in the first century Roman world and often relating to pagan forms of worship so it was very much around then as it is today. Um, of course we see it today in our world today frequently now under these banners of freedom and self-expression but we know the sixth commandment tells us that this is wrong and Paul stressing it here again. Okay, So we don't do these of course. Uh, also he talks about desire it's, Paul's now bringing it to a more kind of general term. We talked the three that had kind of the sexual uh, nature to them. Now this is just an overall desire here. Of course, desire can be used in a favorable sense. And Paul uses it in Philippians 1.23 where he says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, part, to depart and be with Christ that is far better. So there's that positive. But what Paul here is, is, is added, you know, with the evil, evil desire here, he's made, that's the other side of the coin of desire, but evil desire. 
And then this is everything not necessarily limited to a sexual nature, but anything of evil desires. Covetousness, uh, which is idolatry. Paul groups those together. Covetousness, Eighth Commandment stuff. Still more general term here. It's The meaning of this is the state of desiring to have more than ones do, right? That's covetousness. And also it's kind of the same as idolatry because covetousness makes what is desired into a god. And if you recall in Matthew, it's Matthew 6.24, where Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is the kind of the thought on the covetousness here. Okay? So for all these vices, though, it appears which Paul says which is idolatry. The commentators argue that the root cause of all these sins is idolatry. In fact, it's first commandment. There is a lack of a right trust in him who is made known in Jesus Christ. Okay? And then, of course, the idolatry expresses itself by self-centered desire, uh, centered desires. Um, I mean, any questions on that? I mean, these are fairly self-explanatory here. Okay, now Paul goes on to say in 3.6 here, okay, so he talked about all these sins, and on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Not sugarcoated, right? There's no sugarcoating here. Uh, but Paul's saying that the wrath can be translated as anger. The anger is God's attitude towards sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 1 18, where he says, For the wrath, or can be anger, of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So anger, that's what God has for this sin. Anger, wrath. Anger is also used, used though, for God's attitude towards unbelief. And we see this in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, so the, the wages of these vices that we see and their root cause, which is sin, is oftentimes referred to as the anger of God. So that's what Paul's using it. This angry wrath of God is coming. So again, not sugarcoating. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay. No one will argue with that, right? Okay then, um, verse 3, 7 then. So, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Okay. So, the verb walk, as I've talked about before, often refers to how one conducts or lives one's life. So, in these two you once walked, in these two you once also lived your life. Doing these is what Paul's saying here. And again, walk, walk can be life or live. So you lived in all these sexual sins, evil desires, covetousness, which is all about idolatry, sin, 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 right? 
Um, so this brief verse says much about the makeup of the Colossian congregation. Um, according to Dr. Dettering, he says, because Judaism was characterized by its high ethical standards, what is said here probably applies to those who had been Gentile pagans before their conversion to Christianity. Hence, these words indicate the presence of a sizable number of former Gentiles among the Christian Colossians. So, for what that's worth. So, um, clearly, Paul calls them out and said, you all once used to do these things. So, okay. 3.8 then. Back to our, the whole theme of this, put off, right? But now you must put them all away. Colon. Anger. So he's expanding the list now. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Okay? Again, anger, wrath. I, talk, I talked about this before about God, but now he's saying it to the Colossians. Anger, wrath, they're kind of synonyms. They're combined usually to strengthen the thought. And this now is moving away from sexual things in this to referring to violent activity and not just mere emotions when he says anger and wrath. Malice, um, the Greek it can also mean wickedness. So it can be translated wickedness, malice, or ill will. Um, but again, this may proceed and then express itself in the violence and anger that he just mentioned before. Um, slander can mean blasphemy as well from the Greek. It's just hurtful speech to another. And then obscene talk from your mouth. Stop obscene talking from your mouth. Okay? Any wrongful speech, even if not directly harmful to a, sper a person, we're not supposed to do. So what these th then do, Paul is moving it here, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He's moving this all uh, to really putting us into about hatred of our neighbor. Um, and we see this today in our ever-increasing isolated society where impersonal discourse happens on social media. Examples of such things as anger, wrath, slander, and even obscene talk can all daily find their ways into the lives of the Christians. Okay? Over such sins, God is offended, though. He says that. It's very clear. And because of such sins, um, God's wrath will one day come in final judgment for those who are not believers in Christ and continue to walk in these paths of all these things that Paul is telling us to put off. Okay, so Paul would have those who are being renewed in the image of Christ, which we'll talk about in 3.10, have nothing to do with such sinful ways which bring no glory to the one who saved us. Okay, so even in our sanctified life, we know we talk about justification. All right, we are justified not by works. Okay, and that's not what Paul is saying here, and that's not what I'm saying here. It has nothing to do with justification. Okay, this is our sanctified life. And this is the, how the law works, okay? We, we know that the law has three uses, okay? Curb, right? Society. Mirror, the second use of the law, which we all know. It's probably the most important use of the law. It's when we look in the mirror, the law, what does it do? It accuses us, okay? But then this is the third use of the law, and this is kind of what Paul's talking about this now in our sanctified life. There is a use for the law, 
for those who have been justified still. And that's what this third use is for. It's not for those who are unbelievers. Paul's talking, uh, it's for believers that the law is still applicable, not only to show us our sin as the second use of the law, that's the third use of the law. This is the guide. This is what helps us um, in our daily lives as Christians on how we do act and how we respond to the God's gifts that he's given us um, through his death and resurrection and our justification. But again, the third use has nothing to do with the second use, okay? But these are examples. These are what we should not be doing as Christians, and clearly Paul is saying this here. Paul is not using this section uh, to say that this is how you become justified by Christ, okay? Let me make that abundantly clear, and I think you guys know that. But this, again, is our sanctified life, even though um, our works don't um, have anything to do with our justification. Paul is clearly saying here, as Christians, put these off, okay? So this is what we do, and this is what the law does, and that's why the Ten Commandments are still applicable for us today as Christians, because that's uh, a guide, a guide for how we live. And, of course, even though the Ten Commandments are a guide, there are still things in there that tell us, Negative things, don't do these, but then do these, okay? And we see that, in, remember we go through the catechism, explanation of the first, there's always two parts to it. There's a do not do these, right? But then it's like, but then do these, okay? So that's what's going on here, Paul put off. So, okay, is there any questions about that, Barry? Yeah. I was going to ask, uh, this additional list that seems to be uh, sins that are focused on hatred of your neighbor. Yeah. Would those also be by the commentators uh, under the label, broad label of idolatry? I would think so. Yeah, uh, at the end, I mean, isn't that it? Everything goes back kind of to the first first commandment. So I think it could be, absolutely. Yeah, I think when we violate any of the Ten Commandments, second through ten, will when you violate the specific commandment, we're taught in the Catechism that in addition to that, you're always going back and violating the first commandment, right? And uh, I just was going to add that I I think you said something which resonated with me, that uh, idolatry occurs when we don't focus on Christ. So, I mean, there's the antidote, uh, you know, of all this, all the sin, and, you know, so... Mm -hmm. It's like inward focused, right? All inward focused. Yeah, and we, we yeah. see that on everything, inward focused on, on, on what we do and we act, and then also our beliefs, too. You know, that's the inward focusedness of this word righteousness, you know, that I'm focusing inward. You're actually making yourself an idol, okay? That's why we, everything is extranos to us. It's from without us. Our justification is from without us. It's all Christ has done, right? And then, and then, um, when, when we're not focusing everything on God and turning away from that, our motivations do turn into idolatry. It's an inward looking. So yeah, that's good. So, but you're right. That's the whole sum of this. And we talked about it at the beginning, right? Even when Paul set this up, he talks about we focus on things above, which really is we focus on Christ and Him, Christ crucified. That's exactly I, I, right. I think of that commercial uh, from back in the 1990s, I think, uh, you only go around once, so go for the gusto. You know, <laughs> I mean that, that's idolatry. You know, take care of number one. You know, and right, right. We have to fight that. Yeah, right. That is that's what we fight, and that's the whole point of you know 
in our sanctified life. It really all boils down to, and this is this is great because you know you think we don't need to do all these other things like enter into the monastery and try to create all these new things of how we're walking this perfectly sanctified life. No, it's structured in the Ten Commandments. And really what it is on the second table of the law gives us comfort. It's all structured to really loving our neighbor. I mean, it's great. We don't have to invent all these crazy other things. It's all really about loving our neighbor. And the two greatest commandments, we love God and love our neighbor, right? And that's, that's the good part about all this, not having to create all these extra things we have to do. It's simple love of God and love of neighbor. And that's the point of our sanctified life. And you see this when we do all these things, which Paul is saying put to death. When we do all this stuff, most of it is, we're not loving God and we're not loving neighbor. Right? I'm sorry, could, let me get you on the... Let me get you on the... Okay, yeah, absolutely. Can we say then that the work of the Holy Spirit is working in us towards our sanctification on a daily, always... Right. That when Jesus said, I will send you the helper, and he will guide you in all the ways. So his Holy Spirit works in us towards our sanctification, we can say that? That's exactly right, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every, these, are, these, these are given to you. You're, 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 na- you're being a neighbor. It comes to us in your vocations. It becomes, yeah, our good works uh, come to us um, as a result uh, of our justification, and the Holy Spirit then allows us to do these good works. Now, are they perfect? Perfect every day, and we're going to get into that in a minute. Paul says that, right? But we do. I mean, we strive. When you become a sanctified, uh, when you become a Christian, and you do good works, those are the only good works that count. Those that are not Christians that think they're doing good works, those don't count. Yeah, it's boasting. It's for their own good. Right, right. So the good works, that's right, to puff themselves up. And again, get back into the idolatry, yeah. So that the good works for us, good works in, in God's eyes are only those good works that are being done by believing Christians who have been justified. But then those good works are given to us through the Holy Spirit, uh, through his word and his sacraments. And that helps us and gives us the ability to do the good works and to love, ultimately love the neighbor, love God and love the neighbor. So. I think uh, Romans says uh, any work done outside of faith is sin. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, Pastor talked about that in Bible, uh, the men's Bible class. That's right. That's right. So isn't it kind of strange to hear that the neighbor that does uh, good works and is a really good neighbor and does everything? I mean, I, that's good, right, for an ordered society. But at the end of the day, if they're unbelieving, those are all meaningless. Meaningless. Yes. Atheist who believes in uh, sort of um, uh, in saints and stuff, and in sacrificial to inanimated objects. So, mm-hmm. so I'm a good person. <laughs> so when 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 you say you're a good person, you yes. just lied, <laughs> right? It's original sin. It's original sin, especially you know if you're not. Uh, you're not a Christian, and you say you're a good person, and that, that's the point of this all here, okay? So again, this is, this is um, good stuff here about our sanctified life, and sometimes we forget this, and, and, and I know that. Um, again, I think the uses of the law, of course, the second use, the 
mirror. That's the chief use of the law. Okay, these show us our sins. When I look at these, anger, wrath, malice, I think that's kind of putting them. Um, that's that's hitting me. But at the same time, I know I'm saved um, through faith and not my works. But then again, there's another aspect of the law that's that we can't forget about. Um, that is, as Paul's saying here, in our sanctified life, there are ways that, that we do that we do act. And again, that's in response to the gift of salvation and our justification. Um, let's see if I'm going to... Um, speaking of lying, I just said that. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, um, seeing that you have been put off the old self with its practices. Okay, And I'm going to go to 10, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. I hate to do this. I've got a lot to say on this stuff because this is really getting at the key of what's going on here. Old self and new self. This is an, a really great motif that we, the church has used, the early church fathers have used for a long time. You know, we hear old Adam, old Adam, new Adam, old man, new man, old self, new self. We've heard it through baptism, Justification and sanctification. So I think what we'll do, since we're out of time here, if you don't mind, I think we'll end there because I'd really like to hit these images of what the old self and the new self are. We'll look at uh, this in baptismal images. Barry kind of brought it up at the beginning, um, which is really uh, great stuff. So if you guys don't mind, we'll minute end it maybe a minute earlier here so I don't have to... Uh, Start a whole new, new, deep uh, look into the old man, the new man stuff. So, any questions? Oh, we still have about a minute left. Any other questions on what we said today? Good stuff. Remember, in the cla- at the beginning of class, I told you there's a ton of theology in this book, and there really is, isn't it? I mean, the thing we continue to hear baptism over and over and over. But we should. We should continue to hear baptism over and over. And as we're going to read next week when I talk about the old man and new man, it's an everyday occurrence of looking at our baptism. So I think it's great that, we're stre- that Paul's stressing these baptismal images over and over because we need that in our, li- in, our Christian, in our sanctified life. Okay, Drowning the old man and rising of the new man, which we'll talk about. So thank you all very much. The Lord be with you.